special edition of the Elevate Network today in partnership with the World Localization Day initiative, working in conjunction with Local Futures. Today, we're here to address an important question. How can a, lo a, a localized movement bring about fundamental systemic change? My name is Dan Eston Gregory. I'm the host of the Elevate Network, a private community for activists, change makers, free thinkers, and visionaries from all across the world who are here to challenge the status quo, exchange ideas, and seek solutions to some of the complex issues facing humanity in our world. In celebration of World Localization Day, we have partnered, as I mentioned, with Local Futures, founded by uh, one of our guests today, Helena Norbrook-Hodge, uh, to firstly co-stream the premiere of Planet Local, uh, A Quiet Revolution, the film that we shared last night, uh, a brand new inspirational film featuring Helena herself, Charles, who's with us today, Charles Eisenstein, uh, Russell Brand, Vandana Shiva, Dr. Gabor Mate, George Ferguson, one of our uh, panelists as well today. And now we're having a fascinating panel discussion with some truly insightful guests. Now, before I introduce our guests today, let me first briefly introduce World Localization Day. World Localization Day celebrates the localization movement, which seeks to recapture autonomy from global corporations and foster deep and profound change at a local level. For decades now, many of us have seen uh, the effects of a global, an increasingly globalized economy and increasingly centralized power systems. And the results of this can be felt across all of our communities. We're witnessing a global dependency upon international supply chains, the degradation of the natural world, the decline of democracy, and an increasingly polarized and divided society. So many of the decisions made by central organizations are so far removed from local communities that those decisions are now affecting people in a profound way on a local level. So for the third year in a row, people all across the world are coming together to explore the power of localization, a growing movement for change, moving away from corporate rule towards democracy within local empowered uh, communities. So our panel today, as I mentioned, is here to address the question, how can mass localization bring about fundamental change? And it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. We've got Helena Norberg-Hodge from uh, Local Futures, who's the founder of uh, Local Futures and the instigator of World Localization Day. We're joined by Charles Eisenstein, who's a counterculture philosopher, writer and speaker. George Ferguson, who's the first elected mayor of Bristol in the UK, an architect, urbanist and environmentalist. And John Freeman of uh, Matter Whole Foods, who's here on the ground uh, doing his part to, to localise the food supply. So it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest today. And I'd like to begin, Helena, by coming to you to, to, to give a bit more context on the work that you're doing around localization. And in particular, why why is this why do you think this year's event is so so important given everything that we've been through over the last two years with the pandemic? Well, I wouldn't say this year is more important, but I would say that this year shows that the interest in localization has massively increased with COVID now, with the war in Ukraine, more and more people, even at the level of the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, they're beginning to question a little bit the vulnerability of global supply chains. So there is definitely a, a huge shift in awareness, but I think we, we urgently need to get this bigger picture out that links the tragedy of epidemics of depression, of financial economic insecurity worldwide to the rapid destruction of the environment, the rapid destruction of life itself, it's all as a consequence of a techno-economic system that has become more and more powerful. 
particularly now through the use of algorithms and huge techno systems, something that we really need to discuss a lot. Um, so we are in a situation now where vastly less than 1% are winners and much more than 99% are losers. Uh, so it's high time that we get the wake up and the sort of mass movement, a movement of movements where we come together and say enough is enough. We've got to shift the direction of what we call progress or what we call growth uh, to support genuine growth, the growth of ecosystems and healthy human societies, healthy individuals. And the, we, we feel we're offering a very clear picture that I hope people will delve into and, and that it will help to bring together people who are until now working more on single issues, on you know, human well-being versus ecological well-being versus restoring democracy or just focus on climate. All of this narrow perspective can be linked to, to this demand for a systemic shift. Indeed. And, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think are the biggest opportunities in 2022. You know, where, 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 where do you see uh, the, the, the chances to grow the movement and where, where people can get involved, particularly in some of the developed part of the world, the UK, US, um, other parts of Europe? Well, I'm seeing that the crisis, um, particularly now with COVID itself, but then also the various climate emergencies, have led to um, an experience of the vital importance of local community relationships, absolutely essential. They've become, uh, in, yeah, it's raised awareness uh, very, very rapidly. And I just think the opportunities are, I think, to use these technologies of mass communication as much as we can to help people to see more clearly how their voice and their action can support a systemic change in support of life to enable the reconnection, the inner reconnection, as we are once again finding who we really are, even this to do with balancing the brain between left and right. It's it's a at every level it's about reconnection. And that uh, that understanding of the incredible benefits for personal health, for personal happiness and the healing of the planet, that path of reconnection. I think people are sometimes not clear about what uh, the ideas that are being fed to them, the narratives that are being fed to them around how do we deal with climate change, for instance, the focus on carbon, now regenerative been pushed out there as a way of of dealing with food security and many really well-intentioned people who are actively involved as now Georgius with his food um, project and permaculture movements, transition movement, they're doing wonderful work to restore ecosystems and increase productivity. But by giving the label regenerative, they're giving an alibi to Unilever, Monsanto, and giant corporations who have been pushing that term to keep our perspective narrow, to not focus on the system, the trajectory from the seed to the table. And as George will say, I'm back again with the composting. So without that systemic view, we end up using a single label to do with the mode of production, 
And we end up, as I say, giving alibi to giant corporations and actually strengthening a trajectory that simultaneously reduces product productivity and yields while increasing not only pollution, but the sale of products, uh, processed food, high fructose corn syrup, trans, trans fats that are now very clearly leading to an epidemic of ill health heart disease, diabetes, etc. So the language, the view, the perspective, we need that holistic view. And that's where the opportunity is. As we put out the big picture, that's where we can catalyze and bring people together who are in large numbers, the majority want change. They feel it. They know we need fundamental change. And they are so ready for um, a, a vision that can help them link hands with others, as opposed to what the dominant narrative is doing, which is using very effective algorithms to separate and polarize us. As we've seen in the social media, it is lucrative to encourage not only polarization, but, but nasty, you know, really uh, divisiveness and violence uh, verbal violence, but also linked to physical violence, that is lucrative. And if we don't wake up to the bigger picture that connects, we're going to be caught up in this prison of ideas that divide us. Yes, thank you, Helena. I think there's some really interesting comments there around those the need for a movement of movements. What's What's been fascinating for me to observe across the world is um, a, a lot of movements are fighting different surface level issues, but actually not, not communicating with each other and working together, even though they're working on the uh, the same root issue, if you will, but that they end up falling out on the surface level when we're actually all working towards a similar aim. Charles, I'd like to come to you now. You've commented over the last couple of years on different cultural narratives. You've looked at these issues for many years now. You've also commented recently how the ongoing migration of life to this digital realm has been accelerated by the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, you've spoken on how the illusion that technology can meet our deeper needs for a happier life uh, and how that presents an opportunity for a renaissance of local communities. I'm interested to hear your, your follow-on from Helena and uh, comment on some of these pieces around both uh, kind of narratives and the digitization of the world and polarization that follows. Yeah, well, that's uh, a lot of topics. Yes, especially as you have to, you've got a short timeline. <laughs> so I think I, I'll just um, uh, continue where Helena left off with the issue of polarization, which, um, you know, on the one hand, we we can look to the look at the algorithms and the political interests and so forth, but I think that one reason why there why the the public is so easily polarized is because of a you could call it a crisis of identity and belonging. If you don't know, if you don't have strong ties to the people and animals and plants and place around you, then you really don't know who you are. You, you're, you're not rooted um, because knowing who you are depends on being known by others. We're not separate individuals. So when, when we live in an atomized society where people have are are dependent not on the people around them and familiar and intimate not with the people around them but dependent 
on distant markets, um, distant people mediated by technology and, and money, then they don't know who they are. So along comes, it could be a corporate brand, it could be a political brand, it could be some ideology uh, that tells them who they are by defining them in, in opposition to somebody else. So, so you could say that this polarization is more a symptom than a cause of our current social inability to be coherent um, and to solve any of our problems, which are actually quite easy to solve objectively. Helena mentioned that that true regenerative agriculture beyond the label um, can bring you know not only ecological healing but even higher yields. I mean, we could completely solve the climate crisis, which I don't even like using that word. That's another one of those words that tends to get hijacked into globalized solutions. So I would rather say the ecological crisis. I mean, we could easily solve that if we were in agreement. Uh, and the changes we would have to make were, are, would actually be less than the changes that we made to um, uh, in the face of COVID. Like those were profound changes and huge sacrifices for many, many of the uh, world's less less affluent people in the global south, for example. Uh, that that that's one thing that doesn't show up in epidemiological metrics: the number of children that are, you know, being starved, stunted, wasted all around the world. So anyway, um, another thing I'll, I'll pick up on that Helena said was, uh, I can't remember the exact words you used, Helena, but it was about, um, you said saying enough. And this is to realize that we have a choice in the matter and that what has been presented to us as technological progress is not an inevitability. That is fundamental. Because the, the 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 narrative or even like the mythology of progress says that whether it's good or bad, it is inevitable. Helena's work has has spoken a lot to the um, fake inevitability of urbanization. And you look at all kinds of demographic projections and they all take urbanization for granted. Well, why? Are are we are are we sovereign as a collective, like, or not. I mean, can't we choose whether to urbanize or not? Can't we choose whether to adopt more and more technology? But this assumption of inevitability and of this arc of progress that takes us more and more away from materiality, even more and more away from place, more and more away from community, um, that that perception of inevitability and its association with progress, I think that's one reason why the public and especially progressives have been so um, have so easily accepted the social changes in response to COVID. Whether it's um, working from home, uh, learning from home, dating from home like everything in your little bubble like that or or uh 
uh, technological dependency for health, for immunity, like all of the things that came with COVID seemed to fit or did fit this narrative of inevitable progress. And it's really, you know, I, I think that that COVID was an enormous, it was, it was, it was I mean, I called it an initiation, a coronation into sovereignty because it asks, it says to us, here's where we've been going. Here's a glimpse of the future. Do you want it? Is this really what you want? And if we awaken to our to our choice, then we might say no. And we might overthrow the narrative of inevitability. If we, I mean, the inevitability, it actually does have a truth, which is that if we don't exercise our voice, if we don't exercise our sovereignty and true democracy and take the choice, then it is inevitable. I mean, this is, this is the, the default that we're moving toward. So that's why um, films like this and events like this are, are are really important because they tell us that there is no that that there is an alternative, and they d- display what the alternative might be. Um, yeah, I mean, I can say an awful lot more about about the metaverse, um, but I'll just I'll just um, simply like beyond all the. Uh, intellectual arguments about the effect on society and and the depression and the anxiety and the addiction, like all the stuff that has that has skyrocketed during COVID. I'll just point to how I mean, how do you feel when you're online all day? Something in the human spirit recognizes that no amount of virtual experiences can substitute for the real thing. Ultimately, what we're doing here is reclaiming life. And life is in the world, and it is through relationship. It's not separate from the world. I mean, we are incarnate here to be here. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll pause with that and and hand it back over to you, Dan. Thank you, Charles, for your comments. And I know that you've only got a short time with us here today, so you've you've left us with some thought provoking material to pick up from. Uh, thank you uh, for your contributions, George. I'm going to come to you now. I've got some questions for you, George, but uh, I'm also interested in your reflections on what both Helena and, and Charles have shared um, before we we progress. Well, as as always, Helena and Charles have come up with some very wise words. Um, and I'm quite optimistic about the whole localization movement because I think it's something that everybody can relate to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very keen on campaigning about climate change and the environment and all those issues, but actually virtually everything comes back to local. And I think local sells. And so that I don't think we need to, um, I don't think we need to be too pessimistic about it. I mean, I hate the fact, I hate the fact that we've got 
food moving across the world completely unnecessarily and sometimes there and back again. It's absolutely mad. But what we're finding in our little ecosystem in, in parts of Bristol is that people are magnetized by local, by things that happen locally, by food that is grown and eaten locally. They, they love the story. And I think our challenge is how we accelerate it so that people recognize that it's urgent that we deal with these things. You know, I totally agree with Helena that it's about mental health. It's, um, and, uh, and I think Charles agrees about that. It's about our state of mind. And if we spend our lives on screens, we're not going to engage with people in a proper manner. Um, and we have a, a wonderful project in Bristol um, that is trying to tackle, for instance, the epidemic that we have in young men's suicide levels. Uh, it's called Talk Club. It's about, and this, like world localization, is going global. It, start, it started in Bristol. It's now got local groups all over the world where people come together to talk about themselves, their state of mind, how do you feel out of 10. Um, and we've connected it with food, uh, with, interestingly, with low alcohol or, or low alcohol drinks, and um, that, that raise money for the project. And um, you couldn't do that, except you couldn't do that in any other way other than through local connections. So while I believe that food is absolutely at the center of localization, um, because it's, it's a need, um, we can see that food security is better answered by local growing and um, the having a, a true circular food economy um, that, uh, that self-sufficiency has become so much more important um, uh, together with food security since the, what's happened in the last two or three years um, and in the UK with us coming out of the EU, people now realize that we need to be more self-sufficient. Maybe that is one good thing that's come out of something that I disagreed with, but nevertheless, um, I think the um, fact is that it's easier now to access local food than it is to access food coming from um, abroad. Um, and, but the, all these things feed into a sense of community and um, engagement with the people around you. And um, so I am really optimistic that people are getting a sense of feel good around some of the things that have been forced on us as a result of 
COVID. I'm much more engaged with my street and the people around in, in the immediate local community than I ever was before. I'm more engaged with natural life around me and more engaged with what happens in the garden and the park next to me. Um, I'm more engaged with the dog walkers, even though I don't have a dog, uh, who engage with each other's naturally. Um, and I'm not encouraging everybody to have a dog, but watch what dog walkers do to engage with each other and exchange ideas. Um, and uh, maybe we should all have an invisible dog and we'd meet everybody in the community and we would talk with them. Um, I'm engaged with markets that are street markets, that we have a food market. And what's really fascinating about it, go to a supermarket and watch how much people engage with each other, very little. Go to a food open market, a street market, a, a car park market and see um, when the cars have gone, which is always lovely, and see how people engage with, with each other. It's completely opposite. Um, so they don't just come to buy, they come to talk about their community. So I'm an optimist in terms of this great movement that Helena is, is leading because I think you've only got, got to get people to engage with it and they get it immediately without you having to thrust it down their throats. Thank you, George. Um, there's a question I have for you before we move, move on to John. Um, Helena spoke in the film about this being a bottom-up movement and that it's a people-led um, movement, and I, I, I thoroughly support and, and, and agree with that. How, how, though, do we tackle, on a local level, you've worked within, obviously, the, as the first elected uh, mayor, you've, you've seen firsthand how bureaucracy can, can stand in the way. You know, if, if people want to start their own markets, perhaps there's red tape and things that get in the way. How do people actually overcome some of the red tape or bureaucracy that could be uh, stifling the growth of this movement? Well, I think Bristol and probably every city that's a good city is a good city because of the individuals that take initiatives rather than the governance. And I used to say when I was mayor that, you know, in a way we're a good city in spite of our governance. We're a good city because people take local initiatives. And um, one of the things I did was liberalize markets because the city was very controlling about markets. And I think if you just say yes to people who have got local initiatives, instead of being too cautious about it, um, and that message gets out, you know, whether they're play, local play schemes or whatever they might be, then you are, um, you get an explosion of things happening. Um, if you say yes to people who want to start a swimming club in the, in the harbour, even though the water may not be 100% safe, instead of saying, you know, being too cautious, which is what governance tends to do, um, you are giving people permission to do things. You're giving people permission maybe to do something that is traditionally been thought of as slightly dangerous. Give permission to uh, people to occupy the streets um, with walking and cycling um, and scooters and doing the things that may annoy some car drivers and uh, who are also electors. But which is which is why um, politics sometimes gets in the way of these things happening. So 
I think that um, good leadership is very much about giving permission for local initiatives. And once people get that message, there will be an absolute explosion of stuff happening and people will enjoy it and they will see that it improves their physical health, their mental health, and eventually their pockets. Thank you, George. John, I'd like to come to you now. John is the founder of Matter Whole Foods on the bleeding edge of localization, you know, at the, at the, the front-facing element of the localization movement through the work that you do. Uh, very interested, uh, obviously, also to hear your reflections on what's been discussed so far, uh, but, but your view as well on how supporting local food systems can make organic whole food accessible to everyone, contribute to the local economy, the health and happiness of, of, of its members. Um, very interested to hear your views uh, from your unique perspective. Yeah, well, um, uh, I mean, I came into this sort of this whole uh, organic whole foods um, just out of uh, the fact that in my area, which is quite an alternative area, there wasn't really anything on offer. Um, your average corner shop and stuff like that offering, you know, what, what I would consider to be not particularly <laughs> nutritious food. Um, and uh, after asking around in the local shops uh, if they were prepared to start selling it um i i was met with no's and so i started to use my space that i have here in eastern um as a shop um and it grew just from a few boxes on the floor up into um the big shop that it is now and was supplying um the whole community with with everything that they need to nourish themselves and um as as part of that journey, I've discovered that um, yeah, it's been it's been um, along the lines of what we're discussing today. I've I've made a lot of discoveries uh, regarding um, how important uh, local s supply is and and the benefit that it that it does bring. For me, I'd say that um, a lot of the benefits, obviously, you know, keeping the money in the local community. Um, so by supporting local, you you're able to generate more jobs um you're able to have food that is is less traveled um we, a big focus for us is the organic side of things as well um which which for us means that uh, less pollutants going into the environment so it's um it's all very key to to what we do but um yeah over over the years uh, it's definitely developed um what we've been up to here um because we've sort of found these these are the reasons that are beneficial for uh, this this type of um, shopping. Um, we've got uh, obviously the the sustainable um, elements of of what we do, which is which is um, benefiting not just the people that shop here, because obviously that that's good for their health, but of course it's beneficial to everybody uh, locally and globally because we're putting less. Um, we're harming the environment less by by doing it this way. Um, what I have noticed over the years is, is obviously is getting people. There are a lot of people who are really, I mean, who wouldn't be into the idea of uh, having a, a healthy environment and a, and a healthy uh, body. Uh, two things which, without those things, you you, you know, life isn't really happening. Um, but people are sort of. <sighs> automatically even though they've got this desire to do it they're automatically um put at a disadvantage because the cost is more and um, it, it, it it's always sort of bewildered me that the fact that uh you know to, to sort of have a, a uk apple 
um, is more expensive than a New Zealand apple. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's sort of frustrating me uh, to sort of have to battle this whole sort of getting people to be able to prioritise and, and afford to, to do things that are, that are right for themselves and right for the environment when you've got sort of this uh, globalisation, which is, uh, I mean, for me, I, I feel that it's probably the subsidies which are, are making it cheaper. And um, it, it, like I say, it's putting people on on the back foot when it comes to actually doing what's right for them and doing what's right for the environment. So, um, yeah, we, we sort of constantly in this in this quandary of, of um, you know, we're, 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 we're it's not the it's not even the mainstream that are going to be interested in particular. It's it's more of a sort of an alternative community at this stage. Um, but like George, you know, and myself, you know, we, we're sort of we're doing it because it's it's what's right, not what's not what's profitable. Um, and um, you know, if it really feels like um, this is the right way to go, and and regardless of every, you know all of the things that are in our way, we, we sort of still push forward and and want to see this this movement happen yeah i think i mean george obviously expressed his passion for for this piece as you have done yourself around the the amount of food that is exported and then import the same food type imported just so that the corporations can capture that margin uh, to profit from that difference when you know sufficient goods are being produced within the local economies that could cater to the needs of the local economies uh, what what have some of the barriers been for you in terms of sourcing uh, local goods? Is that is that been a challenge for you, or have you have you been able to find an abundance of suppliers? Well, obviously, you've got a couple of main things. I mean, one one is obviously that uh, the the cost of of uh, locally produced food is more expensive, but um, also people are, um, are are sort of um, struggling to uh, you know um, bring bring all of that all year round um so there are going to be the hungry gaps um and you know matter whole foods has, has been doing well we're, we're we're growing going from strength to strength and and we want to put back into the environment and back into the community and and going forward we'd like to do things which would be um you know sort of helping a, a, a sort of all year round uk sustainability um through agriculture through um urban agriculture through um, fermenting, canning, so enabling ourselves to sort of have food all year round. Then it, during the hungry gap, I envisage uh, things like microgreens and um, mushrooms being grown to sort of subsidise the the lack of uh, fresh fresh vegetables um, that would be available for the for the hungry gap. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And actually, I'd, I'd like to come tell him to talk about this because it, to me, I, I think Charles would have commented on it as well. Um, you know, our preferences for the food we eat and our dietary um, choices, how to what extent those choices are informed by the advertising of the, the, the major corporations that are, that are promoting this certain way of living. Um, your solutions you know require us to think differently about what we eat but actually very positively because not only does it enable us to eat seasonal goods it enables us to look at more of a diversified diet which actually for our health benefit uh, health standpoint is is um is, is very powerful um Helen would you like to comment on some of those uh, elements that, that John has brought forth
Okay. I'd love to. I, mean, I just want us to really keep driving home the message that the costs are a political choice. And as you were saying, John, it's to do with the subsidies. That is to do with the subsidies, the taxes, and the regulations. And Charles, you were talking about, oh, sorry, George, you were talking about deregulating the markets. And that's so interesting because, of course, the neoliberal globalists have been deregulating the market, the global market, while those corporations that have been pushing for global deregulation have been pressuring governments to regulate at the local and national level. And we know many specific examples, but it's been this insidious process where regulations are a key reason why local fresh healthy food is more expensive than processed toxic food from the other side of the world, which comes out of monocultural farms that are less productive and they become less and less and less productive because they kill off the soil. So it's, it's a complete joke. It's utterly outrageous that this is going on. And I would argue again that the reason it's happening is because of the lack of the big picture. And it's, it's a, the, the resistance of, for many people to look at the economy. I've spoken to brilliant physicists, to a, a brilliant professor who had a chair at the University of Chinese, Professor Tian, professor at the University of Beijing and at the University of Berkeley, California. And he agreed with my analysis, but he said, I'm not an economist. I can't speak out about this. I agree with what you're saying, but I can't speak about it because I'm not an economist. We're trapped in this belief that only the specialists can speak. And, you know, you have to be an Einstein or, you know, we are Einstein to be able to reflect on the bigger picture. And you certainly can't be a woman like me and be taken seriously. But it is really what we all have to do now. We really have to just step back, see and understand the basic principles and structures and speak out and then support the, the, the bigger picture that's being created um, as we put these materials together, I just, yeah, just please help us get out this message that the overregulation at the local level is disastrous. And, and the courage of someone like George to say, well, I'm going to take a bit of a risk. You know, maybe that water isn't entirely safe. Maybe people can make a mistake. But if you put the picture together with the fact that our governments, while telling you that people shouldn't be allowed to be swimming in their river, they are giving corporations the right to play around with our genes with the potential impact for millions of years. So this absolute, you know, incredible dissonance between the deregulation of the global level where these giant corporations can play with life on Earth, can choose to subsidize the satellites and the, the path that allows Elon Musk to make even more billions at great risk to humanity at every level. Uh, and then at the same time at the local level, no, you have to wear gloves. I don't know if that's still happening in fields in Australia, but they were told they had to wear gloves to pick beans. And they're supposed to have 
um, you know, water available to wash their hands in the fields. I mean, you know, it's just like uh, totally insane what's happening. But because we're not stepping back and looking at this deregulation and the subsidies at the global level, subsidizing players that don't pay tax while squeezing everyone else for taxes, including you and me as individuals, but also businesses. And then the regulations, which are now ever more bureaucratic, ever more insane, um, strangling, creative, genuine entrepreneurship, genuine, if you like, capitalism, perhaps, perhaps we should be embracing the term capitalism. Perhaps it's fine if some people want to be more creative and entrepreneurial, earn a little bit more than others, because maybe other people don't particularly you know, want to spend time earning money. As long as this is within the parameters of genuine democracy, genuinely accountable, visible structures, this is the, this is what this analysis is um, saying that's very different from the conventional critique of capitalism, you know, from the sort of general historical critique of this global capitalist system. Um, yeah, anyway, I could say a lot more. But. Thank, thank you. And I mean, it raises a number of extra questions that, we'll, that I'll come back to. Um, what's interesting, I mean, within our content, we've pointed out this notion that you've shared around one, you know, one rule for one set of players and another rule for others. This has played out in many different contexts. Um, in the last couple of years, we've talked about the notion of government overreach and government underreach. And usually it's the government overreach usually affects civilians and uh, local communities and the underreach benefits the benefits of the lives and, and, you know, existing elite. And this, this, it doesn't matter what sector you look at, this is playing out. And, and this for me is where there is an opportunity because we're operating in silos on different issues, speaking about the same problem, uh, but 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 falling out over the, the specifics, including views on capitalism. So I think it's interesting to have that nuance because it enables a broader set of people to enter into, into, a, into a conversation. George, the term political choice was used. This is the second time I've heard the term political choice. Um, the, second, the, the first was last week in the context of the current energy bill crisis. And again, the same story is that, that this is being enabled through political choice. Um, what, what are some of our political options, do you think, where we face some of these challenges, where these decisions are being made by central organisations that are uh, so far removed from the local um communities, uh, what, what's necessary to, to have this macro influence to, to build upon what, what Helena has shared? Well, I mean, Helena is absolutely dead right in that we are subsidizing and liberalizing the wrong things while being much more restrictive about the good local thing. And um, so somebody's asked an interesting question and there are some good questions there, Dan, to have a look at. And the, the, somebody's asked a question, would you ban um, imports? No, I think it would be difficult to ban imports of food. But what we should be doing, and this is a, a political choice, is we should so stop subsidizing um, fuel that is... Um, not just subsidizing the food that's coming abroad, but subsidizing the travel for that food that's coming from abroad. And then we can operate on a 
level playing field where the local can truly compete in a fair way with the um, international food trade um, that is exploitative of, of uh, local communities. So I think there are loads of political choices, a lot around energy um, that is, uh, you know, th that maybe is an opportunity now for people to, you know, it's a cruel thing, but for people to respect the cost of energy, the real cost of energy, instead of um, using it in a wasteful manner um, by flying potatoes from, you know, from Russia to, well, wherever it is, from China to, to the UK. Um, so I think there are lots of political choices that don't have to be punitive. They're just leveling the playing field between the global and the local. And then the local becomes the obvious choice. Thank you. Exactly. Yes. And the thing is, when you actually look at it honestly and the bigger picture, I am convinced that the vast majority of people would go along with that common sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, as to, for me, the problem is the siloed thinking. It's the over-specialization that's been encouraged increasingly in these last 35 years in this new era of globalization. And, yeah, that's, that's the problem. And as I tried to say in the film, also in some ways, once we understand that the main problem we're up against is, is the perspective, is the narrow view, and what we need to disseminate is the picture where we put two and two together. Um, I think, you know, the potential for change is much greater than we think. However, we've got to be aware that in the dominant areas of media and academia, virtually every avenue of knowledge, it's hard to get a voice in that isn't well-funded. In other words, it's big money that's funding the ideas. So that's why we have to be more creative. You know, or any of the listeners, the activist movements, we have to be more creative in getting this holistic picture out. Well, on that point, I've got the questions here from, from the audience and I'd like to pose this one to John uh, from, from Dan Haylock. The, uh, he asked that our digital convenience culture creates a disassociation with manual work and, and real conversation. How do we persuade people that the work involved in localization and genuine relationships is fun, uh, fulfilling and rewarding? Um, is this a generational challenge? Obviously, you've, you've been someone who's taken the initiative, done the hard graft, you've set up an, uh, an organization that supports uh, localization. Uh, how how do we encourage more people to 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 do what you've done? Well, I mean, I think um, you know, in my mind, there's there's a lot of uh, ways that we could sort of incorporate the sort of lifestyle that we've got now to sort of um, to work together with uh, you know the, the sort of practices that we're practicing. I mean, at the moment. People are, you know, driving across town after after a busy day at work and, and uh, you know, they've got to get to the gym and they're sort of frustrated by all of the traffic and they're revving their engine and they get to where to the gym and then they get on an electric machine and, they, you know, they're in an in a air-conditioned place and and they're being starved of, of, of nature because they haven't really got time to do that because they're too busy sort of, you know, doing all of the things to sort of counteract the fact that they, the, 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 the current society that we live in. 
And um, I think, you know, in, 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 we could actually sort of provide more. I've got ideas where you could provide more, say, in the local parks or something like that, where you're doing agriculture as a, as a sort of sport. You know, you, you could throw over some of the space that's used for, for football or whatever. And you could be creating sort of farming techniques and, um, you know, different things that people could, um, you know, re-engage with natural uh, natural practices. I'm, I'm really into foraging myself. There's a, a, you know, it's an abundance of, of food that could be harvested and preserved and all of these things. People are hungry for that type of information as well. So, you know, I think that there's definitely a way of integrating uh, the the sort of the, the the need for fitness and and knowledge and stuff like that with this sort of older um, you know the the, the 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 survival instincts and and the sort of being able to provide sustainably for ourselves. Thank you, um, Helen. I come to you now. Um, there's been a question around um, self sufficiency and moving towards self sufficiency. Um, the idea that the UK, for instance, is, has not been self-sufficient for many decades. Is, is the possibility of self-sufficiency within our reach? And if so, what would need to happen to accelerate the path towards uh, a sovereign self-sufficiency? Well, it's, again, changing the key mechanisms of insisting that government starts deregulating and subsidising this path towards greater diversification, greater self-reliance. And within a very short period, we would see amazing response with a little bit of help from the top. I am so inspired by the number of initiatives that are sprouting up across the world without any help from government, without any help from above, really. No help from mainstream media. It's all, and just embodied intuitive reaction to what people see that is needed and what they see makes sense, what they see gives them joy, makes them healthier, makes them happier. But I really recommend very strongly the film, The Biggest Little Farm. If you haven't seen it, please do. The Biggest Little Farm is a beautiful expression, uh, you know, shows over about a seven-year period what happens when you take a bit of dead land and focus on diversification, including animals in the cycle, vegetables, trees. It's remarkable how you can bring back not only health to the soil, you can bring back, basically create a situation where you have water and water retention in what was dead, parched uh, soil. So we have to understand that this path of specialization, monoculture, for export. That's the deadly heart of this global, very destructive economic system. From the outset, it was imposed by global traders. It made global traders richer, but it was impoverishing societies and ecosystems from the outset. The logic in the economic system of comparative advantage, which is the principle that says it doesn't make sense for you to keep producing everything you need. You should specialize in what you're good at. That sounds so common sense and so logical. You can understand why people say, yeah, sure. You know, we can grow oats very well in Scotland, but we can't grow corn, we can't grow grapes. Yeah, let's specialize in export. But 
like I say, no one has been briefed with stepping back to look at what happens when that is taken to this extreme, which I have to say also at the outset was actually this whole concept was pushed by the global elites that were benefiting from imposing this type of specialization at the local level. So if we, if we just do what we can in our local communities, come together to work together from the, the seed to the plate, and as George says back again, if we work together to create those food systems, we will not only see how beneficial they are, but if we can also communicate to others about the existing projects that already exist that are demonstrating how beneficial this path is. Yeah, I just want to stress that there's too little effort put into funding the communication of these success stories. Too much focus is put on how can I create a new project? We need that, but I think we need you know, many more people to actually fund and support the dissemination of this vision accompanied by examples, as we try to do in this film. Um, so I think if we do that all the time, pressuring upwards, starting with local and regional government, but being clear that we've got to reach governments at the national level with this global systemic understanding, and the local examples. That's that's how we can start to make really meaningful change. Thank you. I, I, I suppose the good news from, from our organization's point of view, the Elevate Network is, 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 is built for exactly what you've just described, not only dissemination of information to help people uh, become aware of the various issues that the world is facing, but, but actually to connect with other people who are uh, doing the work, you know, inspiring projects, how we can um, synthesize best practice, share ideas, uh, share the learnings, but also become aware of what's going on. Because, you know, I, I live in Bristol and uh, and there's so much happening in this city that even, you know, keeping track of what's happening here is is, is one thing. And I'm sure that uh, George and John, are, 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 you could share many examples of great projects happening here now. So I think this is where technology becomes a tool for change as opposed to something that, that, that is part of the problem. And we can actually utilize that to actually create networks around uh, what's happening in the world. Um, this notion of the political part of the solution is, is, is coming up frequently within the comments. Uh, George, I'll come to you uh, on this one. Uh, interestingly, um, we, had, we had a submission of a, a question before the, the panel, they couldn't make it today, but asking whether we should be attempting to put, uh, to seek to put forward representatives within local governments, local councils who are in favour of localization, who can become advocates within uh, within politics. Do, do you see that as a, as a, as a route forward to to advance the political challenge? I think that's happening to a certain extent. And I mean, Bristol has moved from being dominated by the two main parties now to having um, uh, equality between, for instance, Labour, the ruling party, in terms of numbers of representatives, and the Greens, the um, who, who really are the local party to a certain extent. That's what they, you know, in many... In, in most cases, the Greens are preaching this um, localism um, message. Um, so while I'm not uh, a member of the Green Party, I'm independent, 
Um, I think that there is actually a real movement towards place first and politics second, which is probably the way forward. You know, your community, your place should come before any um, political advocacy. Um, somebody has asked the question, um, you know, how do we get rid of capitalism? I don't think it's a matter of, I mean, I, the danger with that sort of approach is that you're then going to divide good people on both sides of the economic argument away from the, the important um, answer. Localism, I think, can embrace different beliefs like that. Um, what we need to do is get rid of the domination of global capitalism. It's mm -hmm. not about getting rid of, you know, I think communityism can embrace both a local capitalism and a local communism, if you like. I mean, you know, go, go to Havana where everybody grows their own food. Um, and, uh, yeah, it used to be they mended their own pavements and things. I don't know what's happening there at the moment. But there, you know, that, that created out of whatever you believed in that particular political movement created very, very strong communities. Um, so let's not complicate the argument of localism with other, you know, with, with for and against other political beliefs, because I actually believe that localism will bring together people into a common cause that will make life and health a good deal better than it currently is. I'd like to explore that further with you, Helena, because I think this, this to me, is, I think has been one of the biggest barriers to progress with the kind of localization movement as a whole. Um, the concepts of capitalism, you mentioned communism, you know, these are very divisive words to different people. Um, and the, the, the moment people associate a movement with either anti-capitalism or pro-communism, for instance, the, that's, that's shut the door to a lot of people. The, the moment a, a movement becomes associated with the political left or the political right, that shuts the door to a whole lot of people. Uh, I, I think you know we've we've become subjected to these polarizations and divisions that have actually prevented us from working together. And as I've mentioned before, even in the last couple of years, there have been people who have been campaigning. I've been to different protests formed by different groups campaigning on different issues, but they're all. If you just recorded the speeches and took out the, the kind of top line policies they're campaigning on, they're speaking about the exact same things. Yet they're actually fighting each other. Uh, and to me, this 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 is part of the big problem. The big problem itself is the way that we're divided and polarized. And finding a way to transcend that, I think, is our greatest opportunity. But it's also probably our greatest challenge. So I think, Helena, when I watched the film Planet Local, I think to me that was one of the first documentaries, style films that I've watched where I didn't feel triggered once <laughs> you know, during the course of the program, which... You know, in many cases, I, I, I've experienced within the kind of overall uh, pursuit of social change that it, there's, it, I usually find a point where there is a political divide. Uh, whereas last night uh, when we premiered that film, I think others would agree that it, that, that it was presented in a way that enables people from all backgrounds, all political leanings to actually embrace. So, so I'd like to pose that to you, Helena, because I think it's a big problem. Polarization, division amongst people. How do you see a way forward with these challenges? 
But actually, I would say our film, The Economics of Happiness, perhaps does an even better job because in Planet Local, I was slightly worried that we came out looking a bit too green because, again, once we really understand what can happen when people come together at the local level, then these labels of green or capitalist or communist, these labels fall away. And there is a natural way that people in a local community could never use GDP as a measure. It just wouldn't be possible for them to all subscribe to the idea that we'll cut down every tree on the mountain and we're going to call it progress. It wouldn't be possible. So what happens when people come together in their local communities and the land and the water and the trees are part of the environment that supports them. And when they actually have agency over what happens to that water and the soil, they become naturally green. But in the dominant system, there are now so many people who are struggling so hard just to put food on the table. And they have become uh, convinced that the greens care more about a rare frog or a rare bird than they care about them because they're being 24-7 brainwashed by the idea that progress, building that new road, building that new nuclear power plant, building this great new super highway or that new bringing in the new Walmart, it's all part of progress, it's providing jobs, it's good for... So they're being manipulated into believing that green threatens them. And so it, this is, again, why localism as a conceptual framing, but also as a practical rebuilding of the community fabric and people coming together at the local level to think about their future is such a win-win-win strategy. What also happens at the local level, if the shopkeeper happens to be Hindu or happens to be a white male or happens to be gay, What's important is whether they're running a shop that actually provides you with your needs. And this is, this is Dan, or this is Mary, or this is Mohammed. These are people who I get to know and I relate to. And suddenly all those labels, whether they're foreign, whether they're different, whether fall away. What happens is, what becomes important is, are they human beings? who have respect for others and who are doing a, you know, a good job. I, I, it's very, very scary to me that um, we are not aware of the extent to which we are becoming um, entirely run by labels rather than direct experience. And I just want to give another example. In some eco-villages, some intentional communities, they've discovered that if there's some conflict in the community, sometimes there'll be a few hundred families living in a, in a community, and they discovered when they have conflict <clears throat> that they are now saying, we're not going to use email. We're going to meet face to face. They've discovered that this tool of di is actually distancing. It's, it forces us to relate only through the words. We don't have the human contact. We don't see and feel the bodily uh, movements. We don't look people in their eye in the same way. So I, 
I just want to say that at a much deeper level, the direct experiential face-to-face contact is essential for healthy human relationships. It's essential for healthy farming. The idea that robots linked to satellites are now going to do the farming for us is, uh, is this enormous step in a direction of treating the earth as a mechanical factory. It's never going to work. It cannot work. It can never give that respect to that unique strawberry plant of yours that's right next to another strawberry plant, and one is twice as big as the other, and you are there working with, you know, the fruit that ripens earlier, the fruit that ripens later. Once you impose the mechanical standard machine on life, you are wasting and you are destroying an opportunity to work creatively and joyfully with life, with the infinite diversity of life, every single plant, every single human being. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be using this technology that we're using now to try to communicate a message that is about how can we get back to life? How can we get back to face-to-face relationships, to rebuilding that fabric of connection that Charles also talks about and, and that we try to talk about? Yeah, John, I'd like to ask you about that in terms of the work that you've done. We've talked about the kind of economics, the politics and the um, practicalities of the food supply. But in terms of the work that you've done on a local level, how has it contributed to the kind of local community in terms of forming connections, uh, creating that direct person-to-person uh, network? Tell us a little bit about the positives that have resulted from the work that you've done. Perfect uh, question there. Yeah, we we, um, we really feel like uh, in the shop, we, we're getting so much uh, community um, get-togethers. People are uh, interacting very much in the shop, and it, it is a, it is a strong thing that we notice. We always call ourselves so much more than a shop because people do exactly that. They get together, they're chatting. They're, you know, there might be someone at the counter, and they're saying, "Oh, I'm getting some turmeric because it's anti-inflammatory, and I do this with it." And then someone else behind in the queue will say, "Oh, really? Oh, tell me more." And then and then a discussion will ensue um, uh, regarding uh, health benefits of particular things and we're learning and we're researching and we're passing on things and um, you know that the sort of local people are are bringing in their produce to sell and their their products that they've made and and uh, the amount of times I've found myself in the shop and and you've just, just got these amazing people around you know sort of chocolatiers and great giants that you know you eat their products and 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 uh, yeah just feel very uh, blessed to be um creating a hub which actually sort of enables these people to 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 come together and and share and and be a community um there's obviously this sort of whole online shopping or supermarket shopping as i think george touched on earlier you know people aren't really communicating in those types of places i, I certainly remember uh, back in the day when I would use supermarkets and, and you sort of, you're just in a rush to get in and out and you might see someone and you just try and pretend you haven't seen them. And whereas in our shop, you know, we, we get people staying for hours, literally hours and, and, and chatting and sharing. And, and there's a wonderful sense of community that comes from what we're doing here. And, and people are feeling nourished both through their what's in their basket, but also through what's you know the conversations and and the the sort of inspiration and the, and the, the the hope that is being generated by what it is we've found ourselves doing. 
Mm. Yeah, uh, that's, that's such a powerful story. Mm. I just want to say I feel so lucky that because of my work all these years trying to encourage particularly the local food things, but this coming together in community, every day I get to hear about these amazing, inspiring examples. They are happening. It's like, like George was saying, he's feeling optimistic. I do, however, want to warn about the, the way that the other systemic escalation could still cause a lot of damage. So I think the next few years are crucial in giving voice to this inspiring movement again. What I, I think local is one of the best terms to cover the systemic dimension, but it's not enough. You know, local is being co-opted as well. HSBC, you know, the world's local bank. Mm -hmm. So again, we need several terms, you know, smaller scale, more diversified, slower. These are key elements um, of the path forward, life affirming, reconnecting. Um, and yeah, this holistic picture, we need to get it out. Thank you. George, any reflections on what we've been discussing any, and comments on some of the questions that you've seen? Um, yeah, I mean, just um, maybe we've got unhealthy level of agreement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's nothing that I would disagree with that John Charles or, or Helena has said. I think um, Charles was talking about Technology. I think that that's something that none of us have, none of the rest of us have really addressed. Um, I think there is a very great danger in th seeing technology as an answer, but it's how we use it. Um, we're using it now in a way that links people with different issues. Um, I think technology used for messaging about this is is absolutely vital in a way that we just couldn't do otherwise, you know, you couldn't do it by pigeon post. Um, but technology is the answer to um, the environmental and climate uh, challenges that we've got are dangerous. Um, you know, when you go to the big extremes like nuclear power, Nuclear power by its nature is a, um, is a global solution. It's a big solution that requires a massive network. Local technologies that um, particularly solar, wind and, and the renewables can be captured by local communities to the benefit of local communities. I mean, a wonderful example we've got in Bristol is where a, a quite challenged, impoverished local community has um, worked with local energy cooperatives and the local energy expertise that we have in this city to um, commission a major wind turbine that, um, that totally benefits their community. That is in total contrast to the new Hinkley power station that nobody relates to themselves and nobody sees the benefit of it to their themselves or their community. So I think 
technology that's captured by communities for communities can be really good. Technology that is just simply creating bigger global corporations that we, you know, that, that are taking over the world are, are, are very dangerous. Mm. Mm, yeah, I think it's it's down to our relation. Yeah, to you know, communities to me are about relationships, and and when you get into the abstract, our relationship with technology is one that can be healthy or it or yeah. can be I mean, you harmful. Yeah, we don't all have to be hippies to be local. I think it's really you know, and I, I you know, I'm a bit hippie in some ways, and I don't use that as a, a, a as an insult. I I just think you know, we can embrace or. I come back to, I think we can embrace all beliefs in local. And I think that's really important. And we embrace the technologies that work for us, but uh, dismiss those that are by their nature big and require big corporations to, um, uh, to operate and unfortunately to control us. And I have to say there, the biggest question is around the internet. Because the internet definitely serves the global commercial entities in a way that it doesn't the genuinely local. It's very tricky. So I would urge people to try to look at using the internet as we have it now and these tools of communication to get at the message about localism, but to be very cautious about encouraging 5G and an escalation that more of our taxes should be used to increase the speed, to increase the scale of our dependence on these technological systems. And I think a very important area here to discuss is the extent to which uh, blockchain and the internet would genuinely serve decentralization and localization. I think we need to be extremely skeptical, and I would love to... I'd love to talk to people who genuinely understand exactly how blockchain works and what it really means in terms of a true independence of local communities. Um, I'm seeing that in the local food world, for instance, world, for instance so often uh, people now want to set up an app and use the, the, the internet for the relationship between the consumer and the farmer. And in all my experience, all these years, those systems have never worked as well as the face-to-face -face ones, as the farmer's markets, the shops, the farm shop, community support agriculture, subscription agriculture, have all been more effective and have got off the ground and lasted much longer. Uh, and, and of course, when we look at it, there are many reasons why. It's what you were saying, John, that people are feeling nourished, not just by the food, but by those local relationships. And when they stand in that queue and they learn from someone else about the benefits of turmeric, that this is, again, these are multifarious ways that our solution multipliers. Because this, this is why localization is so important. It's a systemic win, 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 win. And, and actually, the winning has even more dimensions than we can even begin to talk about here. When we get into the spiritual side of things, that would be another whole program. So maybe we can pursue that another day. 
Yes, well, the good thing is, you know, the work that we're doing at Elevate Network is hosting these panel discussions and we're developing a faculty, actually, where we're bringing people together from very different domain expertise. So the likes of a conversation around decentralization, around blockchain, for instance, bringing people together who are working in different sectors, this is our opportunity to actually facilitate those conversations. And, you know, George mentioned that there's been a lot of commonalities and agreement amongst the panel. And I think what, what we're trying to foster is, in the culture of kind of this, the, the background of cultural safety is, and we're actually, we're trying to create courageous spaces where we can have difficult conversations, but in a very respectful manner, because, you know, we've touched upon polarization and division. The reality is we've had it, we've had a very pleasant conversation here today. And there's people in the comments have been asking some interesting questions. If we open up the debate, for instance, around that, even just the subject of capitalism, I don't, my view is it wouldn't take very long for that to escalate into, into a very heated and spirited debate. But what we need to be able to do is have those conversations and actually get to uh, some of the things that we share in common and actually find my experience is actually we are actually looking for the same thing, but we were disagreeing on the means of attaining it. Um, we hosted a day looking at different forms of solutions, and there's a couple of examples I could give. And one, one example is of a table looking at the future of finance, and there was this heated discussion around you know, the preservation of cash versus embracing cryptocurrency. Um, barter, all of these different discussions. But when we actually drew it back to what, what are you actually debating? What are you actually looking for? And it turned out that everyone was looking for sovereignty over their cash. They didn't want to have, that uh, they wanted to restore privacy, but they also wanted to have convenience and autonomy over how they spend their money. Cash, crypto, barter gave all three <laughs> the opportunity to achieve that. So we often find ourselves arguing about the same thing, but we're actually debating the means of attaining it and just disagreeing on the means of attaining it. I think when we can have a higher level conversation, the big picture activism that you talk about, Helena, looking at the systems level, having that complexity of thinking, we can actually get out of the, the weeds and into the bigger picture to start to understand what the, the systemic complex issues are. And then the, to me, the beauty is there is a multitude. The diversity of solutions is fascinating. And, and that, that, that by, by embracing a diversity of solutions, it enables people to find things that they resonate with. And ultimately, if it's moving the needle forward in, in, a, in a positive way, uh, to me, that, that is part of, part of the solution in itself, is, is, is recognizing there are different means of achieving something. Um, this has been a truly uh, fascinating reveal and conversation. Uh, as I said, to, uh, we, we're going to be doing a lot more of these. We're having... A, a number of different uh, conversations like this across a different series of dimensions. Uh, we're holding these to address big picture issues in the world. Uh, we're doing this particular conversation today in, in alignment with World Localization Day, which has been the center of our conversation today. Um, if you haven't yet figured out uh, uh, what's going on uh, with World Localization Day, we encourage you to go to worldlocalizationday.com. You can see all of the events. We've done two uh, here with Elevate, but there's a whole multitude happening across uh, the month um, that, that uh, Helena and the team are helping to, to co-facilitate. Um, this is such an important topic. And certainly from, from our community off the back of the pandemic, people are looking for solutions. They're looking for initiatives that they can get involved with on a localized basis. Now, the good news is there is obviously a lot of groundswell of activity. The big question is how we signpost that activity. Off the back of the film last night, Helena, there was lots of questions. People say, I'm based in this part of the UK. I'm based in London. What's going on in my area? How do we find it? What are some of the answers to that? How, how, what, what are some of the easiest ways, in your view, for people to connect with the localization movement and find out what's going on in the area, in their areas? I would say, first of all, it has to do with this shift in lenses so that they're actually starting consciously to look for these small and relatively invisible initiatives in a more conscious way. 
in other words, they need to be awakened to the fact that most of the good news in the world is happening from the bottom up at a human scale, and it's being made invisible. If we had an honest press, we would be having, you know, we would be informed, we would be, we'd know that the way to feed the world is by going smaller and more diversified and supporting genuine food sovereignty, food security. Right now we hear, you know, alarm bells and how we're going to feed the world and we're going to do it now through, you know, we're being pressured to believe that we need to shift into even more technology to feed the world. Uh, So if if we were allowed to get the truth out, we would be knowing about this project. But what we have to do now is to do a bit of research, maybe start with one possibly possibly look at uh, anything to do with permaculture, to do with local food initiatives, and find a way that way. One way that people have often started the, the sort of conversation in their city or in their area has been by using one of our films um, to do a film showing, and then they find that the people who show up for that film represent a whole community, very diverse community, from many different backgrounds who are beginning to share that common common sense knowledge that we need to come together to build the community fabric, to reconnect as a way forward. So that can also be a way of finding more people in your area. We were doing conferences before COVID, and George has participated in quite a few in many parts of the world where by putting on a conference where we brought out people like George and Charles and others that you've probably heard of, many in the film, um, and together with local activists, we presented a panel, a chorus of voices that helped people to not only come together and to see what's happening locally, but to generate more activity. These films that we produce can also act as a conference in a way. You can put on a community screening or a screening in your town and then bring in some of the local activists, those who have who are leading projects there. And I do I want to say actually the website is worldlocalizationday.org. And I want to encourage you to go to localfutures.org. We are a very, very full website because what we represent is a sort of treasure trove for anyone who's interested in local and localization because we've been putting together readings and materials for, well, for 40 years. So we've had articles and writings. We have examples. We have a whole series actually called Planet Local. We have a Planet Local series on our website of examples from around the world. We can only cover very few in the film. So you will find there a treasure trove of ideas and materials and inspiration, including a a localization action guide, which gives you examples of initiatives that you might want to undertake and where you can learn from initiatives around the world. So thank you very much, Dan, for putting this on and I look forward to collaborating more in the future. Thank Thank you. you. And for 
for our uh, UK visitors, the World Localization Day is spelt with a Z. Uh, so make sure you get it at worldlocalizationday.org, uh, localfutures.org. Uh, thank you, Helena, for everything that you're doing. George, before we wrap up, is there any, any projects that you would like to signpost or any resources that you would like to share in closing? I don't know about a specific project, but I think that, uh, you know, I come back to where I started, really, that I think all those little food projects are making a huge difference. And we need to recognize that farms don't have to be 10 acres, which is the official size that a farm has to be to be recognized as a farm by government in the UK um, to be um, uh, productive and worthwhile. As Helena mentioned, yeah, in a way, the smaller, the better. And you get higher productivity and you get more local interest. And so I, I think what is going to be the big thing is the development of networks of little local initiatives that come together to produce something so much bigger than the, the, than the mega business. Thank you. And John, you're obviously based in Bristol here, where I'm also uh, based. Uh, could you share a little bit about how people can find your shop and uh, your how to reach you online? Yeah, well, our website is uh, matterwholefoods.uk. Uh, we're here in Easton um, uh, in Bristol. And um, yeah, you can come in the shop. We've got uh, all of our uh, whole foods and fruit and veg. Uh, we try to keep everything as uh, accessible as possible. So we keep the prices down by utilizing um, what might otherwise become waste in our kitchen. Um, so we're doing a lot of um, sauerkrauts and juices and meals. And and uh, it, it's, it's a great thing because those are cheap. And so is the stock on the shelves. So it's great for um, obviously people see the, the see the stuff on the shelf that's the first thing with accessibility but the second is obviously that you can afford to buy it so we do a lot we work very hard um to make this happen um i just like to say as well um i think you know as a as a small sort of uh independent business that is is is, is doing um beneficial things for the community and for the environment i find myself you know like george has uh, i believe george has a shop as well and and i i i, I support it I'm, I'm in collaboration with anybody doing a similar thing to me whereas obviously if you look at the sort of globalized um you know the, the the companies which are doing damage to the environment in the name of profits which i i think should be outlawed um you know they're 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 in competition and i don't i don't consider myself to be in competition with anybody who's doing the same thing as what we're doing we're all out to do the the the, the same thing we want to bring nourishing food in a clean sustainable way to, to the community and we want to grow that and uh, I think that there should be support coming from subsidies from from all, all wherever government and, um, and, and 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 we should all be uh, collaborating to to make this happen and and, and I think our long-term goal is really to sort of um, make it uh, accessible for all and, and and to sort of overcome the barrier of not being able to afford it people who can't afford it should be able to be supported um in the, in the short term um and in the long term yeah lobbying for change of subsidies i believe that you know if you took one percent of one percent of the subsidies which are currently going to banks to to war to, to oil to dairy to all of the things which are not 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 for everybody if you took one percent of one percent of that and put it into a sustainable food then we probably i mean i, I hazard a guess that we probably eat for free 
almost, but certainly we could make it as affordable as it is currently in the conventional food. So people wouldn't feel the need to turn to, um, you know, budget shopping at the cost of the environment, at the cost of human resource and, and maybe even slavery. So we, we, we sort of, yeah, definitely like to get involved in sort of creating um, that, that sort of movement. And um, I don't know if you've got something going forward, but it would be interesting to maybe set up some sort of uh, localization convention, you know, so in each in each city or whatever, rather than having one that everybody flies into from around the world, you have a we could potentially start conventions where we get together and we discuss local ideas and share as a community. Um, maybe George wants to do that on his uh, five acre farm. Who knows? <laughs> Again, yeah. rather than flying people in, we found that sending the film in can be you can have voices from around the world coming in through a film and then you have local people coming together. It's a model that works really well. So I hope, because it is very important because we're being blackmailed all the time into believing that if we localize in Bristol, we're being these selfish elite Westerners who don't care about poverty in Africa. There's huge propaganda, you know, think tanks that, that undermine what we're doing. It's painted as right wing. It's, it's painted as this sort of selfish, middle-class, elitist thing. So again, the, getting the global voices coming in through film is a very good way to go. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank, thank you, everyone. Yeah, so we've had, uh, in closing, we've had Helena with us today, Helena Noble-Hodge from uh, Planet uh, Local, the film, also Local Futures, World Localization Day. We've had Charles Eisenstein with us earlier on today, um, George Ferguson and uh, John from um uh, matter whole foods it's been a fascinating conversation we're here with elevate network we're building regional groups across the uk uh, taking action across a number of different issues working on a number of different projects we also invite you to join us within the elevate network we can find at weareelevate.org my name is dan aston gregory thank you very much to our panelists and i will see you all very soon thanks again good good night good day good morning wherever you're tuning in from it's been a pleasure here hosting this uh, special event in celebration of World Localization Day. Thank you all. Thank you.